Father God, we come before you this morning in the powerful and precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that we have been able to be here this morning, to gather to worship you. Lord, I think about parts of the world where we cannot gather freely as a church to worship you through your word. And so, Lord, we do thank you for this opportunity, for this freedom that we have. And so we ask now that we would make the most of it. Father God, we pray that by your spirit, you would grab hold of our hearts and that you would incline our hearts to you. There's so many things competing for our heart. There's fear. There's anxiety. Responsibilities. There's the things that the world will say are more important. We know that on our own, we won't focus on you. So we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would do that in our hearts. Incline our hearts to you here and now. Remove the noise and the distractions. Open our eyes that we would see the glorious beauty that is you, Jesus. There is nothing more beautiful in this world than you. And it's because that we see your beauty that we can understand all the other things in the world that you've given beauty to. So help us see the beauty of Christ in the word of God. As a church, take hold of our hearts and incline all of our hearts to fear and prize your name. For we know when we rightly fear you, we need not fear anything in this world. May we leave this morning satisfied with your steadfast love that you richly give out to us. May you lead us into truth, especially in a world full of lies. <clears throat> May you strengthen us, Lord, to be your witnesses in our homes, in our communities, in our workplaces, in our schools. And above all, may we delight ourselves all the more in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are continuing with our series in the gospel according to Luke. And so this morning we will be looking at Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Luke 3, 21 and 22. So if you have your copy of God's word, please turn with me there. When I was a young kid, I used to love magic. My parents would go to Florida almost every year, and we'd go to this part in Orlando called Old Town, and there was this magic shop there. And every time we went there in the summer, we would go there, and my parents would get me, you know, magic deck of cards or these different things. I wanted to learn magic. I thought it was the most amazing thing, and they would have individuals in the store performing all these tricks. And when you watch them, your mind is blown. How is that possible? But that excitement, that awe, that intrigue goes away the minute you figure out how they do the trick. You go from how do they do that to, oh, okay. Now you can just jump on YouTube and you can look it up and figure out how they supposedly saw somebody in half or make somebody appear in a chair. So the excitement, the intrigue, the wonder fades. Well, you know what doesn't fade? What, what intrigue never dulls is the more we peer into the word of God and the more we understand Christ. There is, the more you learn of Christ, the more you figure things out scripturally, it has the complete opposite effect. The more wonder 
you have. As the Holy Spirit unfolds the mysteries of the gospel, the glory of Jesus shines more and more. And because he is infinite, that means there is no end to the wonderful things, the glorious things you and I can discover about who Jesus is. So this morning, we're going to look at the baptism of Christ. Many of us have probably read this passage already. But I encourage you to ask God to give you fresh eyes that you can see his mystery here and increase your intrigue in who he is. What we're going to see in these two verses is that because Jesus is empowered by the Holy Spirit and he's confirmed to be the promised Messiah by God the Father, sinners can be forgiven and they can come to him by faith. So let's read this morning's passage. Now it happened that when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was also being baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Before we start unpacking this text, we have to do a little theological homework now. So our first point this morning is called Christ's active obedience. So what is it? What do we mean by Christ's active obedience? When somebody asks you, what did Jesus do? Most people will say, well, Jesus died for my sins. 100% 100% true. But it isn't just his substitutionary death and resurrection that's important. To say that Jesus simply died for sinners is an incomplete statement. Because Jesus not only died and rose for you, but Jesus also lived perfectly for you. So when we're talking about what it is that Jesus has done, We need to not only talk about what he did on the cross, but what he did for those 33 years in his life. And so this breaks up into two kind of theological categories called active obedience and passive obedience. Passive obedience is when we focus on Jesus' work on the cross. His passive obedience speaks of his paying the penalty for our failure to obey the law of God. So as he hung there on the cross, it's passive because this is what's happening to him. The father is pouring the wrath against sin upon him. But his active obedience is how he perfectly lived and fulfilled the law of God. And the reason I bring this up and the reason why this is so important for us to understand is because Jesus being baptized by John is an act of his active obedience. Listen to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Matthew 5, 17 says, Jesus is speaking. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. 
everything that God required of Israel that they were not able to do because of their sin, Jesus fulfilled. Jesus did perfectly. John chapter 8, verse 29. Jesus again speaking says, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. What Jesus is saying on that verse is that his entire life was consumed with one focus doing everything that God the Father called him to do. This is what animated Jesus. This is what brought him joy, to perfectly do the will of God the Father. This is his active obedience. Why does this matter? It matters because if Jesus had not lived that perfect, sinless life, if Jesus had not perfectly fulfilled the law of God, Jesus could not be your savior. Something as simple as we're going to see as this baptism of John, had Christ not been baptized by John, he does not perfectly fulfill the law of God, and therefore he could not be your savior. And if he could not be your savior, that means that there would be no righteousness, no perfect record that Jesus could credit to your account by faith. So his active obedience is of the utmost importance, even though we tend to usually focus on his passive obedience. Even with Easter right around the corner, we are going to look at the cross, and there's going to be a great spotlight shined upon his passive obedience. But the only reason even that Jesus' passive obedience matters, has value, is because of his active obedience. The reason he could be the one who was slain for sinners is because he was the one who lived perfectly for sinners. And it begins here, even, with his baptism. We saw weeks earlier that when he was circumcised and his parents brought him to the temple and presented him. So, church, I want you to hear this. We need to remind, I need to remind myself of this all the time. You and I have no saving obedience of our own to offer to God. Take all of your obedience, bring it before God, and it's not enough. Because even your best obedience is marked with disobedience. And we'll prove that real quickly here. The greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And there has not been one moment in your entire life that you've done that, that I've done that. And there was not one moment in Jesus's entire earthly life that he didn't do that. So we have no righteousness, no saving obedience to present to God to justify ourselves. And so whose record of obedience are we going to trust in? Ours or the perfect obedience, the perfect active obedience of Christ? It's his active and passive obedience that has secured your righteousness before God. Listen to Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. Not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God upon faith. 
Paul is reminded there's no obedience I can bring before him. Romans chapter 5, verse 19. For as through one man's disobedience, the many were appointed sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be appointed righteous. The active obedience of Christ matters. And it's so easy to look at a baptism moment here and not recognize to miss that it is an important act of obedience of our Lord and Savior. So that's our first point, Christ's active obedience. Now we can begin unpacking the text. Our second point is Christ identifies with us. Now it happened when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was also being baptized. It's an interesting thing to read the word of God on this side of the cross. We can use some uh, imagination. We can picture the water. We can picture John baptizing. We see Jesus off in the distance, perhaps. We see him approaching the baptismal waters. And there's anticipation in our heart as we think about it. But here's the reality. It was 30 years since Jesus had been born. Over those years, Jesus had not conducted himself in a manner that would have led the people to think, there's the Messiah. He hadn't done any miracles. He hadn't done any healings. He hadn't been preaching sermons. And so as he stands there among the crowd, nobody gets it. This is why, as we saw last week, they looked at John and they said, is he the Christ? Is he the Messiah? So here's all these people, all of Israel being baptized. And it's almost comical to realize that nobody is aware that the promised Messiah of Israel is standing in their midst. So Jesus comes forward to be baptized. But if you're following the text, you recognize, wait a minute, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It was a confessing that you are a sinner and asking to be purified and be prepared for when the Messiah comes. John's telling people to turn away from their sins. So we have to ask the logical question, why is Jesus being baptized? After all, he's the sinless Savior. He's done no wrong. He doesn't need to prepare himself for himself. So why on earth is Jesus being baptized? Well, there's a couple of reasons. We were to look a couple of verses back at verse 16 in Luke 3. John answered, saying to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So one of the things that Jesus does in his baptism is authenticate, confirm that he is the one that John was proclaiming. John wasn't just some crazy guy out in the wilderness dressed in wild apparel. 
No, he is the prophet who heralds the message of the coming Savior. And Jesus coming and coming into the waters to be baptized says, I'm the one he's talking about. Second, Jesus is baptized to fulfill all righteousness. So the different gospels have different, have the same God, the baptism account, but they emphasize different aspects. So turn with me to Matthew chapter three, and let's take a little insight into a Matthew recorded regarding the baptism of Jesus. Matthew chapter three, starting at verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. We tend to think of righteousness as that perfect credited life that Jesus lived for us. And that's true. But righteousness, especially in a Jewish culture to a Jewish mind, righteousness also was adhering to everything God had required. It was righteousness was often used to describe heartfelt obedience to the law of God. So an example of that would be Deuteronomy chapter 6. Listen to Deuteronomy 6, verse 25. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before Yahweh our God, just as he commanded us. So righteousness isn't simply what Christ has given us, but in that context, righteousness would also be a form of obedience to the law. And because God had given John, the message for all of Israel to come be baptized, Christ now walks and is identifying with these people through his baptism. He came to fulfill all righteousness, to satisfy it. Remember, John's baptism of repentance doesn't simply mean turning away from sin, but it also means turning in obedience to God. So it can be said, that John's baptism of repentance is fitting for Jesus because he's not turning from sin, but he is evidencing, showing that he is walking in perfect obedience to the commands of the Lord. Thirdly, another way reason Jesus is baptized is because it's how he identifies with sinners. When we get baptized, we're saying that we're identified with Christ. When we are lowered into the waters, we're saying we've been identified with his death. When we're raised out of the waters, it says that we are being identified into the newness of life that we have in Christ Jesus. As Jesus enters those baptismal waters, he is identifying with the people that he is coming to save. Though he has no sin, he identifies himself with sinners. Jesus wasn't baptized for himself. Jesus was baptized for us. Jesus was baptized for them. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. If you highlight your Bible, this is one of those verses. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus identifies himself with sinners. I don't know about you, but if you think about that for a moment, now you try to envision Christ entering to those waters. There's a part of me that even is like, no, don't do it. I can understand why John's saying, I can't baptize you. You're perfect. You're holy. You're pure. You're going to get into this water with people like us and be identified with us? And Jesus says, that's exactly what I'm doing. This is why I came. I didn't come to simply be a Lord over you. I came to identify with you to redeem you. It's a beautiful picture here of Jesus fulfilling all righteousness. But Luke records something very interesting here as he talks about this baptism. Again, verse 21. Jesus was also being baptized and while he was praying. Brothers and sisters, Jesus, Jesus is a man of prayer. Even now, he, he intercedes on our behalf. Luke records that, and you can just envision it. As this momentous event is happening, as this baptism is happening, which will then begin to open the door to Jesus beginning his ministry of redemption, what do we find? We find him in communion with his Father in heaven. He's focused on God above. And throughout Luke's gospel, prayer is a very common theme. And we see Jesus always in prayer, especially in those important moments. So we see him here in prayer at his baptism. But let's just quickly look. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. As he's choosing the 12, it says. Now it happened that at this time he went off to the mountain to pray. And he was spending the whole night in prayer to God. Luke chapter 9, verse 18. And it happened while he was praying alone, the disciples were there with him. He questioned him, saying, who the crowd say that I am? And they answered and said to him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And he said to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. So he's praying at the choosing of the twelve. He's praying right before the confession of faith of the apostles. Luke chapter 9, verse 29, at the transfiguration. And it happened that while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. Luke chapter 11, verse 1, as he's teaching the disciples to pray, it says, And it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. 
or Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane on the eve of his crucifixion, Luke 22, verse 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and he began to pray. Or Luke 23, verse 34, Jesus prays as he hangs on the cross. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. So Jesus is a man. He is a Lord of prayer. And here at his baptism, at the onset of, we can say, his ordination service, as we'll see, of beginning his ministry, he begins his ministry the very way he ends his ministry, in prayer to God the Father. Church, it is very, very easy to take for granted that Jesus identifies with sinners and that he was regularly in prayer seeking God the Father's will, seeking to perfectly know the heart of his Father so that he could redeem you and me. But if Christ, I mean, just for a moment, indulge me. What would it be like to have a Savior that didn't identify with you? Imagine that. Imagine Jesus as a Savior, but he hasn't identified. He didn't take upon flesh. He never walked as a man. He stayed at arm's length away from you. To think of that kind of Savior almost seems like there's no Savior at all. Jesus came down to the earthiness of it all. Sinners had been in those waters, right? Those people who were sin. And Jesus steps into the very water. The Holy One of God, the Holy and Righteous One. Do you remember when the ark was falling and Uzzah reached out his hand and touched it? And he died instantly because he was defiled and he was touching the ark of the Lord? So holy is God that that would happen. And yet the holy and righteous one is walking into the same waters that sinful Israelite after sinful Israelite had been being baptized in. He identifies with us. He identifies with you. He identifies with me. I don't want us to take that for granted ever. It's a beautiful thing to see that baptism. And it's because he identifies with us that by faith we can be identified with him. We can be united to him. Do you realize there is no way that you would ever have been able to be united to Christ if Christ had not first taken upon flesh and identified with the people he came to save? as a side application there, if our Lord is praying at all times, how much more should we? But now we're going to get to the, 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 the main point here of this passage is verse 22, which brings us to our third point. Christ declared the Messiah. 
And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. This is the focus of Luke's writing for the baptism of Christ. The other baptism accounts in Matthew focus on different, emphasize different things. But the emphasis for Luke here is that God the Father has spoken and declared. Now, one of the first things we see here at the baptism of Christ is that it is a Trinitarian event. Notice that each member of the Trinity is present. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him, Jesus, in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, you are my beloved son, which is God the Father. Some people will say the Trinity is not a biblical doctrine. What do you do with this? You see all three members present. You see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But I need to briefly mention that there is a false teaching that is kind of resurrecting its head in our culture today. The big fancy word for it is called modalism. Modalism says that there is one God and he'll manifest himself at different times, sometimes as a father, sometimes as a son, and sometimes as the spirit. But they are not three distinct persons. One God, one person manifesting in three different ways. This is why illustrations of the Trinity are not helpful. When people say, well, you know, the Trinity is like an egg. You have the shell, you have the yolk, and you have the egg white. That's modalism. Because you're saying that it's that the egg is manifesting itself in different ways. Each member of the Trinity is fully God all the time and yet distinct in personhood. Today, we see it in a vein of Christianity called Oneness Pentecostals. They deny the Trinity functionally. You may not pick up on it, but you'll probably listen to you'll probably hear these two names and recognize them. The first is T.D. Jakes. T.D. Jakes functionally denies the Trinity. The other is Stephen Furtick, also functionally denies the Trinity. If those two ever pop up on your feed, just keep swiping. There is a lot of doctrinal issues, but they are some of the prominent teachers today that are teaching a heresy. They are teaching that the Trinity is not one God existing in three unique persons. But there is one God who at various times manifests himself in three persons. And so we need to recognize that our God is glorious and he's Trinitarian, and they all are here at the baptism of Christ. You can look at this event, the baptism of Christ. All three members are there. It is the ordination service for Jesus, you could say. Because it is after this baptism that he is sent out to begin his ministry of redemption. The next time we see Jesus, he'll be in the wilderness being tempted. So we see the Trinity here. And the first, we see the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, saying that it descended upon him like a dove. Now, again, there's a lot of nuance here. The Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus like a dove does not mean that prior to this moment, Jesus did not have the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus is God. He is the perfect sinless one. And this is not to be confused with what we saw last week of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because that is something we saw that the Messiah would do. Jesus will give people the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is salvation. What is being said here is that the Holy Spirit is coming upon Jesus Christ, and he is confirming, declaring, endorsing that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah, and that the Holy Spirit will empower Jesus in his human nature to carry out his ministry. It's a public declaration. And we see this as actually the fulfillment of what was promised long ago. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of Yahweh will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. That shoot of Jesse, that's from the house of David. This is shown, this is the promise that the Messiah would come from David's home and that the Holy Spirit will rest upon him. Also in Isaiah chapter 61. Verse 1, the spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to the captives and freedom to prisoners. Jesus himself quotes this passage. You know, this is important because so often we read our Bibles and we want application. What does it mean to me? How does this apply to my life? But it's important for us to understand these aspects as well, because this is how we have confidence in the word of God. As we see the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus, we see, wow, what I read happened seven, what Isaiah wrote 700 years ago is happening here today. It gives us confidence that the word of God is true. That God fulfills his promises. Now it says the spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove in bodily form. It's not saying that the Holy Spirit came down as a dove. We don't know what bodily form exactly would mean. But the coming down as a dove part is speaking more of the graceful manner in which a dove would, would come down. Some have said that perhaps this is an allusion to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, when it talks about the spirit hovering above the waters. Because God is doing a new thing here, beginning this ministry, perhaps. But what we can't say for sure is that it is speaking, the spirit came down gracefully upon the promised Messiah and is confirming that he is who he says he is. But then... It's not only the Spirit who confirms. We see God the Father himself speak. You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. You know, in the New Testament, we only see God the Father speak three times. He speaks here at Jesus' baptism. 
In Luke chapter 9, he speaks at the transfiguration. Luke chapter 9, verse 37. I'm sorry. Um, starting at verse 28. Now it happened that some days after these words, that taking along Peter and John and James, he went up to the mountain to pray. Then in verse 35, we see the father speak. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And then we see God the Father speak in the garden of Gethsemane. John chapter 12. Verses 27 and 28. Now my soul has become dismayed. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have both glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Doesn't seem like a big deal, perhaps, to you when you read this. But God the Father opens the door of heaven and audibly declares a word over his son publicly. The closest I could think is when I was graduated from basic training. And my father, in front of everybody, said, I'm so proud of my son. We understand that, what that means, what that could feel like. Now think about this. This is the Lord Jesus Christ taking upon human flesh, about to begin the ministry of redemption, and the doors of heaven fly open, and God the Father proclaims that this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It is a beautiful moment, a beautiful moment. And he says, beloved Son, which again lets us know that there was a relationship that existed prior to Jesus coming to earth, that from eternity past, God the Father and God the Son have been in relationship. And that word beloved is a beautiful and powerful word because it carries the sense of cherished, of prized above all others. We can say that when he says, my beloved Son, God is showing partiality. Partiality because the love that God the Father has for God the Son is a special, unique love that he doesn't share with everyone. We'll talk more about that in a moment. I want to make sure that nobody falls into the false understanding as some will spouse. There's a belief called adoptionism. Some people believe that at this proclamation here, is where the relationship began, that at this moment, God the Father adopted Jesus into relationship. That is not what this is saying. He is declaring his love for the Son that has existed before time began. Now, beloved Son, here, again, I know this message is a little more theological. This has... This rings of Psalm 2. This is why it's so important for us to understand our Old Testament. Turn with me to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a regal psalm, a royal psalm. Now, 
Look at verse 7 especially. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten. Psalm 2 was a psalm that was prophesying the coming of the Messiah, the king. Jesus is that king. Jesus at his baptism, God the Father is declaring that this is his beloved son, just as Psalm 2 said it would. Beloved son, God the Father is giving a, a messianic confirmation that he is the king. Do you see why it's so important for us to have an understanding of our Old Testament? There's so much there that we miss. God the Father in saying beloved son is not only confirming that he's the Messiah, but he's also affirming that he is the one who will reign as king of kings, lord of lords, and that all the nations will bow to him. And if we are missing that, don't feel bad because many of the Baptists were, were not understanding what was happening. It was a monumental thing. And then he says, in whom I'm well pleased. Again, an Old Testament illusion. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul is well pleased. That's a messianic chapter there in Isaiah. So beloved son, he's saying, my son is the Messiah king. Well pleased, he's saying, my son is the Messiah servant. And the father is saying, and I have complete pleasure and delight in him for who he is. The father is well pleased that his son for the past 30 years has walked in perfect obedience. The father is well pleased. He's delighting that his son is going to fulfill the law to save sinners. And the father is well pleased that his son will willingly suffer and pay the penalty of sin to secure a people for himself. We'll see that in Isaiah 53 in the coming weeks. This is a very important moment. This is the moment that, I guess you say, is the catalyst for his ministry. So important is the baptism of Christ that the entire Trinity, the entire Godhead is present, and that both the God the Spirit and God the Father want to publicly declare that he is who he said he is. So let's start trying to land the plane here. What does this mean for us? I want you to look at those words. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I don't know what it was like during your childhood. Some people have had amazing parents, amazing fathers. You may have had a father who always told you he loved you. He's proud of you. You may have a father who you have no recollection of him saying that, but you knew he loved you. You may have some fathers that were cruel, abusive, neglectful. I don't know. What I do know is this. In his baptism, Christ identified with us, and we place our faith in Jesus Christ. We are identified with him. And so when God, the, that means God the Father looks upon you because the righteousness of Christ clothes you. And when he looks at you, he says, you are my beloved son or daughter. And in you, I'm well pleased. 
The father looks at you as his beloved. The father is pleased with you on your best and worst day because when the father looks at you, he sees that you are clothed, that you are identified with his perfect son. Do you ever feel unlovable? Remember that God speaks over you. You are my beloved son or daughter, and you I'm well pleased. By faith in Christ, that becomes true of us. And as his beloved, that means that we are loved by God in a richer and deeper manner than God loves people who are not in Christ. God has a general love for his creation. He loves what he's made. But God does not love the sinner who has not trusted in Christ the same way he loves the sinner who has trusted in Christ. Because by faith in Jesus, you are adopted into the family of God. And so he loves you with a familial, covenantal love. Not a general love. And his love doesn't change because God never changes. There was never a moment where the father did not love the son perfectly. There was never a moment where the father was not pleased in the work of the son. And there is not a moment in my life or your life, if we have put our faith in Jesus, where God will not look down from heaven upon us and say, you are my beloved son or daughter and you I am well pleased. Also, we see that just as the spirit came upon Jesus, confirming and empowering, so the spirit comes upon us in faith and confirms, sets his seal upon us that we are children of God and empowers us to do the work of the ministry. This was the promise that was found in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? But he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. The Spirit comes upon us through faith. The Spirit confirms that we are children of God, just as the Spirit confirms that Christ was the Messiah. The Spirit empowers us to do the ministry that we have been entrusted. The Spirit empowers us to live lives that are pleasing to God, just as the Spirit indwelled Christ in his human nature and strengthened the human nature of Christ to be the faithful, spotless, righteous one. So a question I have for us is, do we rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish all that God has called us to do? Jesus didn't begin his ministry until his baptism in the Spirit descending upon him. Jesus, in his humanity, lived in complete dependence upon the Spirit of God. Do we likewise depend upon the Holy Spirit? Lastly, for those this morning, perhaps, who are here and are not a beloved son or daughter of Christ, of God by faith in Christ. 
I want you to hear me. Jesus didn't have any sins he needed to repent of, but you do. Your sin is what separates you from the grace and love of God. But Jesus entered those baptismal waters to be identified with sinners. And if you will put your faith in Christ, he identifies with you. He takes your sin upon himself on the cross and he gives you his righteousness so that you can be identified with him. And there is salvation in no other name. There is salvation in no other way. It is Jesus' perfect act of obedience that needs to be credited to you. It is Jesus' perfect obedience and by faith in what he's done that you can escape the consequences of your sin. So just as Jesus entered the baptismal waters to be identified with sinners, I would plead with you this morning to put your faith in Christ and receive that baptism of the Holy Spirit that he promised, as we saw last week. Trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin. Receive receive his righteousness by faith. And that's the truth we all need to hear. In these two verses, we saw that Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit and confirmed the promised Messiah by the Father as the one who came to save sinners. So therefore, let us all come to him by faith. Let us all come to Jesus by faith. Every moment of every day, placing our faith in Christ is not simply a transaction that happened once. We live by faith in the Son of God. We live by faith that he is the holy and righteous one. We live by faith that he is the Messiah. And again, church, I just want you to hear that as we do that, know that God looks upon you as beloved sons and daughters in whom he's well pleased. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our righteousness, who is our very life. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you simply weren't an example to us, but that you are righteousness for us. God, we thank you that you spoke over your son and and that it was recorded in your word for us for all eternity. We thank you that your word is so clear that there is no ambiguity or confusion as to who Jesus is, that you are Lord of Lord, King of Kings, that you are fully God and fully man, that you are ruling and reigning, seated at the right hand of the Father, that you are the only name under heaven by which men and women can be saved. Thank you for your perfect obedience, even in things that seem as small to us as a baptism, that you didn't need. Thank you for being an example to us of living in the power of the Spirit. And let's pray here and now, Lord, for all of us, that we would come to you by faith whether that be faith that you would save us or faith to sanctify. When we come to you by faith, we want to live by faith in you, the beloved son, in whom God is well pleased, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.